Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Adora Namigadde, in for Sasha Ann Simons, and this is the Reset Podcast. Today is April 4th, and on this day, 55 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. We know a lot about King's life, but his death, and specifically the week after his death, well, that's a lot more ambiguous and is not typically taught in history class. But that week is important because Dr. King's death was a watershed moment in the civil rights movement. A new podcast from The Atlantic called Holy Week pieces together the history of those seven days after everything changed. Van Newkirk, the host of the pod, joins me to talk about it all. So Van, what made you want to examine Martin Luther King Jr.'s death through this lens? Yeah, uh, the main reason we decided to to look at King's assassination and uh, the week after it is there's not a whole lot of media on it. Um, there's not a whole lot of documentaries or stories about uh, the assassination and its consequences, especially for Black America. And for me, that was uh, fertile ground for taking a view, for for talking to people, and for really trying to understand um, how that moment reverberates today. Mm, looking forward to unpacking that with you. And I also want to know why you named the podcast after the timing of when he died. Well, uh, the uprising... Uh, on the street in Baltimore by Black Americans has been called by many historians the Holy Week Uprising because it happened in the run-up to Easter season. And uh, for me, it was a good way to communicate both uh, the historical sort of naming convention, but also the larger uh, secular and religious significance of the killing of a person who was preaching, a, who was not just a secular leader, but who was a theological leader in America. Mm. And you argue in the podcast that the week after King's assassination had major impacts on Black Americans that really continue today. Things like clashes over voting rights and redlining. So how did King's assassination upend the social order? So when he was killed, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but when he was killed, King's approval rating sat south of 30% among all Americans, uh, around 25% with white Americans. So he was moving in a direction uh, that, until he was killed, made him sort of the villain in the American story. He was coming out against the war. He was trying to fight for these really radical uh, poverty programs like universal basic income and universal health care. Uh, And so he was really expanding the scope of his fight beyond integration, beyond uh, voting rights, and trying to create an America in which poverty did not exist. Uh, So for me, going back to that moment and looking at sort of America through the prism of what it might have been if he had lived and uh, where it went when he died, it shows to me uh, the differences between—it shows to me that there was a whole lot of work left on the table that was undone. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting you brought up how, for some people, he was seen as a villain. But you also talk in the podcast about how King was potentially viewed as a black messiah. And we want to play an excerpt from the podcast. It's FBI communications from the 1960s talking about this. Prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement. Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, and Elijah Muhammad all aspire to this position. King could be a very real contender for this position. 
messiah or villain? I mean, those are labels across the ends of the spectrum. Why was King seen as such a threat, Van? Well, that's from the FBI, and they viewed uh, this Black Messiah label as uh, one that could have been uh, villainous. Uh, so he was, at the time of his death, although he was deeply unpopular among white Americans, he was still the most recognizable and uh, widely appreciated Black figure in Black communities. And beyond his individual sort of popularity, he was a symbol. He was a symbol of the actual possibility of progress and change and change in America. And so uh, he represented for lots of Black Americans uh, sort of the very substance of uh, the promises of the movement, that they could be fulfilled, that their children would have better lives than them. And that was a radical promise for Black Americans who had lived under Jim Crow in America. So uh, he he represented uh, in America sort of um, this possible future that was that was motivating for a lot of people, but also was crushing when he was killed. Yeah. And I want you to talk about the narrative arc of the podcast. The first episode is called Rupture. The last one is called Resurrection. Just talk about that framing. Yeah. um, I wanted to, a lot of the episodes are named after uh, religious concepts, a lot of them tied to Holy Week. And to me, it's a good way to recognize how King has been folded into our American secular uh, religion, um, how he has become sort of an icon. But also, I want, I'm hoping that people come away uh, having a, a little bit more of a skeptical, skeptical eye toward that. Um, to me, uh, the version of King that is venerated universally mm-hmm. among Americans as part of that secular religion is one that necessarily strips away some of King's more radical uh, ideas and the true strength of his character. So I I like naming these episodes after these concepts, hopefully so that by the end of each episode, you're thinking about that religious concept and actually being more skeptical of it. Mm, And you're saying that in that kind of religious framing, we sort of venerate a whitewashed version of him in our society. But what are some of these more radical ideas that Martin Luther King had that you want people to pay attention to? Yeah, first and foremost, he he was for reparations. He was one of the masterminds behind uh, affirmative action, as we know it in America. He, when he was killed, he was putting together his Poor People's Campaign, which was built on a platform that called for universal health care, universal uh, a jobs guarantee, the total elimination of poverty, um, the uh, total abandonment of war abroad, including the Vietnam War. Uh, these are things that if put on the table in one package today would be considered totally unworkable, radical, and often unlikable suggestions uh, as a political platform. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's zone in on our listening area of Chicago. The Chicago Freedom Movement invited King to live here in late 1965, and he and his family lived on Chicago's west side. This grabbed national headlines. How come? Yeah, so King going up north to Chicago was him going out of his comfort zone. Uh, for the long, for a long time, the narrative of the movement had been that this was a Southern movement, that those folks down there, uh, those white folks down there, they were segregationists and they were the obvious kind of cartoonish bad guys. And that was something that, you know, lots of Northern white moderates could get behind. Okay, we're going to go and smash formal segregation. Um, you know, this guy's a hero. King goes and looks up north and sees these intense levels of redlining, of housing segregation, 
of discrimination in jobs, and he names Chicago kind of as the locus for all of those things happening in uh, northern neighborhoods. He comes up here in order to start a movement that really broadens uh, his argument philosophically and also his geographical base. And that does not rub everyone the right way. Hmm. So it's kind of like, well, at least we're not as bad as the South, but really we still have the same problems. Exactly. So that was always the, the thing that people were able to, to, to you know, toot their own horn. We're better than the South. And then King kind of goes and says, actually, you're not. Mm. And uh, that uh, put off a lot of people. Yeah. And during a march in Chicago, someone threw a rock at the back of King's head and he said that he'd never seen anything as hateful and hostile um, as he saw here. So that really backs up what you're saying there. Exactly. Uh, people came out. There were people who uh, the actual current uh, then the American Nazi Party came out uh, uh, with swastikas on. Uh, people threw rocks and and worse at the protesters. It was something um, that for people who had been so moved by Bloody Sunday in Selma, by the, the visuals of the violence on that bridge, it was something just as bloody and violent that happened in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And what was the long-term impact of King's death right here in Chicago? So immediately um, in Chicago, there are there's unrest on the streets in black neighborhoods in Chicago. Um, and it becomes one of the sort of most heated uh, engagements in the in hundreds uh, in over a hundred uprisings across America. Um, Chicago police uh, are uh, basically ordered to crack down on violence in black neighborhoods by Mayor Daley at the time. Um, it makes nationwide headlines when you have these black neighborhoods that um, allegedly by police, have uh, black shooters shooting at police. Uh, you have fires on the streets. You have people just being out throwing rocks. And um, they are uh, pretty brutally uh, suppressed and put down by uh, police and National Guard. Wow. All right, let's play this excerpt in the podcast from civil rights activist Sophie Carmichael. When white America killed Dr. King last night, she opened the eyes for every black man in this country. When white America got rid of Marcus Garvey, she did it and she said he was an extremist. He was crazy. When they got rid of Brother Malcolm X, they said he was preaching hate. He deserved what he got. But when they got rid of Brother Martin Luther King, they had absolutely no reason to do so. He was the one man in our race who was trying to teach our people to have love, compassion, and mercy for what white people had done. When white America killed Dr. King last night, she declared war on us. Van, can you talk about that juxtaposition between King's vision for the fight for racial justice and then how people responded to that fight after he was gone? How did this play out? That uh, speech from Stokely Carmichael is really one of my favorite moments in the show because it does Mm -hmm. highlight just uh, King himself. He was somebody who was radically nonviolent. He... Um, we we know that his presence in the movement and on the streets was uh, a factor in limiting uh, lots of expressions of uh, more radical black protests. People just didn't go out and riot or burn uh, things down or act in the frustration that their conditions uh, might have uh, called them to do because they did have that symbol of King as somebody who who was working, who could work within the bounds of what was possible nonviolently. 
to bring them better lives. So what Stokely Carmichael was saying there was uh, this was a person who tried in a actually extreme fashion to uh, basically work within the bounds of civil society in America and who was killed for it. And basically that fact, that juxtaposition is what sent so many people to the streets because uh, you have somebody who is, you know, he's not calling for re for violent revolution. He's not calling for violence on the street. He doesn't even believe in self-defense and you killed him. And that is a sort of that sets a whole lot of people off. It's like he did things the quote unquote right way. But even still, you had to kill him. Right. Mm -hmm. He does the things that people who call for respectability ask for. He wore the suits. He made sure to always try and uh, do, you know, get things done by, by legislation. Um, he was he believed in American institutions and he was assassinated for it. So how can you tell Black folks that any route for change is, is possible or acceptable in America? Hmm. And this leads me to another argument you find in the podcast. While many people honored King's legacy, some thought he actually was not radical enough. Another clip, this time from Theophis Brooks, who was a teen when King was assassinated. We looked at it this way. Martin Luther King, we respected him, but he was soft. We look at Malcolm X, Black Panthers, H. Rap Brown, Stokely Cloud Michael, that's who we, we looked at them like that was our heroes. Man, we loved them. Martin Luther King, we looked at him as being a, a good person, a nice person, but he's weak and he's soft. So you mentioned, you know, a lot of people did respect that Martin Luther King was nonviolent, but how widespread was this opinion of King that he was, quote unquote, soft and that he was weak for being soft? Well, I think you have to remember that by the time King was killed, uh, America was... 13, 14 years into what we would call the the 50s, 60s civil rights civil rights movement. Uh, King had been a nationally known name for uh, the majority of lots of young black folks lives. So his they had seen uh, the entire arc of the nonviolent movement. And a lot of them uh, were saying they still lived in poverty. They still lived. Uh, they didn't have access to opportunities and segregation, especially in northern neighborhoods was still just as intense as it was in 55. So a lot of younger Black folks were saying and saying that there were limits to what King had to offer them. So people like the office Brooks, who was for, who was a, a senior in high school at the time, they were looking more to Black power. They were looking more, uh, they were looking more to more radical and militant forms of Black protest um, as things that might take them to the next level. And so I think actually there was a, a widespread notion among Black youth, especially, that King had done what he had come to do. And mm. King himself actually recognized that. So uh, late in life, he was trying to expand his philosophy and footprint to accommodate for those concerns among Black youth, especially. And then can you talk briefly about any lasting impact that you found King's death and nonviolent approach had, particularly on the Black church? Oh, of course. Um, I think you you, you see uh, the nonviolent movement, obviously, uh, it used and could only have functioned through the existing organizing infrastructure apparatus of the Black church. And uh, but also it gave them a lot, too. So you see this creation of these movement networks, 
you see King himself going to uh, do guest sermons and pastor at these tiny churches out in the middle of nowhere um, where there were black towns and uh, and black communities. And so I think you see King, you obviously you go and you, you go to lots of black churches and the fans in the back of the church, you've got uh, Jesus on one side and MLK on the other. He was a, a really big figure sort of in the mid 20th century revitalization of the black church. Mm. And did you learn anything that really surprised you in the course of researching for this podcast? Yeah. So one of the issues, one of the episodes that uh, really surprised me was looking at King's last few days in Memphis before he was killed. So obviously he was there supporting the Memphis sanitation workers who were on strike, um, the black workers who were, they were facing deeply unfair conditions from the city. And uh, while he was there, he came up across initially against a local black power group called the Memphis Invaders. And initially that story goes how it's been uh, traditionally presented in media. He is against, you know, the black power folks are against him. They're clashing. They want people to engage in more radical protests than he's prepared to engage in. and they have a real falling out after one of the marches uh, devolves into chaos and is cracked down on by police. Uh, but after that march, King actually chooses to reach out to those Black Power activists and meet with them in his hotel room and begin a correspondence and a relationship that ultimately ends with them promising to come and be marshals at his march and they meet actually hours before he is, he is killed. So we don't know how their increasing rapport and collaboration would have worked. Hmm. But it puts to lie the idea that King and Black Power and these different movements in, in Black America were uh, opponents and were not, you know, actually members of a shared struggle. Wow, that's kind of a cliffhanger. Well, that was Van Newkirk host of The Atlantic's new podcast, Holy Week. And you can catch new episodes of that show wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you, Van, for joining us. Thank you. That episode of The Reset Podcast was produced by me and edited by Ethan Schwab and Meha Ahmed. If you liked what you heard, then introduce us to a friend and tell them to follow The Reset Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.